York. This is Democracy Now! U.S. Uh, foreign policy has been aggressive, and now we have uh, serious dangers on two fronts. The war in Ukraine, which is devastating, uh, and the dangers uh, in with potential confrontation with China. Uh, we have to rethink our foreign policy. As the war in Ukraine enters its seven months and U.S.-China tensions rise over Taiwan, we speak to economist Jeffrey Sachs about what he calls the West false narrative about Russia and China. Plus, a year ago today, the last U.S. plane evacuated Afghanistan. We look at the crisis facing Afghan refugees. Over the last year, the U.S. has approved only 123 Afghan humanitarian parole applications. Meanwhile, the U.S. has approved applications from 68,000 Ukrainians in recent months. And we'll talk to the 25-year-old gun control activist, Maxwell Alejandro Frost, who appears headed to Congress after winning last week's Democratic primary in Florida. I confronted Governor DeSantis on ending gun violence. And what did he say? Nobody wants to hear from you. I'm Maxwell Alejandro Frost, and I've been making sure they hear from us for 10 years. Protecting the right to choose, passing laws to end gun violence. If we want bold change on guns, reproductive health, and affordable housing, we can't keep electing the same politicians. And today, President Biden calls for an assault weapons ban. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Iraq, at least 30 people are dead and hundreds more injured after fighting intensified in the capital, Baghdad, between supporters and opponents of the powerful Shiite cleric Muqtad al-Sadr. The violence came after al-Sadr's announcement Monday he's quitting politics. Gunshots and rocket fire erupted overnight as Iraqi security forces, Iran-backed militias and supporters of al-Sadr clashed in Baghdad's heavily fortified green zone, an area that houses Iraq's parliament and foreign embassies. Before, we were committed to the orders of Muqtada al-Sadar. Now he took his hand away from us. He withdrew from politics. He is letting the people take the lead in their own revolution. We are not going back. We will die here. We are ready to die. We have nothing to lose. The formation of a new Iraqi government's been paralyzed since parliamentary elections in October, where al-Sadr's Sadrist movement won the most seats but failed to win an outright majority. Al-Sadr's supporters had occupied the Iraqi parliament since late July in an effort to block lawmakers from choosing a new prime minister. Pakistan's government has launched a major appeal for international aid after unprecedented monsoon rains fueled by the climate crisis swept away homes and bridges, destroyed crops, displaced tens of millions of people, killed over a thousand. On Monday, Pakistan's climate minister, Sherry Raymond, declared it is climate dystopia at our doorstep. One third of Pakistan is underwater and um, 33 million are affected. Please tell me how that is not catastrophic. That is the size of a small country. Pakistan's planning minister estimated the cost of rebuilding at over $10 billion and said that figure is likely to rise once rescue crews are able to access remote areas cut off by floodwaters. 
Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves has declared a state of emergency in the capital, Jackson, and will mobilize the National Guard after torrential rains caused the Pearl River to overtop its banks, flooding a water treatment plant. Governor Reeves said Monday evening emergency workers are scrambling to deliver potable water to 180,000 people around Jackson who lack enough water to flush toilets or fight fires. Please stay safe. Do not drink the water. In too many cases, it is raw water from the reservoir being pushed through the pipes. It's the latest crisis to impact aging infrastructure in Jackson, where officials estimate the cost of fixing the city's water system could top $2 billion. In early 2021, Jackson residents spent more than a month under boil water orders after winter storms caused pipes and water mains to burst. Eighty-two percent of Jackson's residents are black. A new study finds Greenland's melting ice sheet will likely contribute almost a foot to global sea level rise by the end of the century. Writing in the journal Nature Climate Change, researchers found even if the world were to halt all greenhouse gas emissions today, rising levels of atmospheric carbon dioxide have already doomed 120 trillion tons of Greenland's ice to melt. Without urgent action to mitigate the damage, researchers warn the amount of sea level rise could be far higher. Here in New York, a fifth round of talks aimed at protecting the world's marine wildlife has ended in failure. On Saturday, negotiations on an updated United Nations Ocean Treaty ended without an agreement after wealthy countries, including the U.S. and Canada, rejected a plan to establish marine protected areas spanning 30 percent of the world's oceans. Ukraine has launched a counteroffensive aimed at retaking the city of Kherson and other parts of southern Ukraine occupied by Russia. On Monday, Ukraine's military said it had broken through Russia's first line of defense and that Russian proxy forces and paratroopers had fled the battlefield. Russia acknowledged the counteroffensive but claimed it had failed and that Ukraine has suffered heavy losses. Meanwhile, a team of inspectors with the UN's International Atomic Energy Agency have arrived in Kyiv ahead of their planned visit to the Russian-occupied Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, Europe's largest nuclear power station. Fighting continues to rage near the site with reports of artillery fire and a missile strike overnight. New satellite images show damage from an artillery attack on the roof of a building right next to Zaporizhia's six nuclear reactors. President Biden will ask Congress to approve $1.1 billion in arms sales to Taiwan. That's according to Politico, which reports the weapons deal will include 60 Harpoon anti-ship missiles and 100 air-to-air missiles for Taiwan's U.S.-made F-16 fighter jets. The planned weapons sales come after China staged large-scale military war games around Taiwan in response to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to the island. A federal judge has recommended against efforts by victims of the September 11th attacks to seize $3.5 billion from Afghanistan's central bank. After the Taliban regained power last year, the Biden administration froze $7 billion in Afghanistan's foreign reserves and then set aside half the money for 9-11 families who sued the Taliban. But some 9-11 families have opposed such efforts. Layla Murphy is with the group September 11th Families for Peaceful Tomorrow. She said, quote, I'm believed the judge has taken a step toward the only legally and morally correct approach, making the entire $7 billion available to Afghans to deal with the economic crisis we helped cause, she said. 
The Biden administration announced it can no longer provide U.S. residents with free COVID-19 home tests, blaming congressional Republicans for blocking the passage of more COVID relief funds that would allow tests to be stockpiled. Public health advocates have warned this could add to a surge of COVID infections during the fall and winter. Since January, the government has mailed some 600 million tests through a program that allowed households to request a total of 16 home tests. People now have until Friday to make their final order on the federal online portal. Moderna sued Pfizer, claiming the company illegally used mRNA technology patented by Moderna to develop its COVID-19 vaccine. The two companies have made record profits off the vaccine. Pfizer's projected $32 billion in COVID vaccine sales this year, while Moderna's forecasting at least $19 billion in sales. Tim Beerley of the group Global Justice Now said in response to Moderna's lawsuit, quote, it's grotesque but unsurprising to see pharma fighting among themselves over who has the right to profiteer the most from the pandemic, unquote. Many public health campaigners have argued the vaccine should be publicly owned since billions of dollars in public funding helped develop them. A federal judge in Washington, D.C., has sentenced 40-year-old Joshua Pruitt to 55 months in prison, followed by three years of supervised release over his role in the Capitol insurrection. Pruitt's an aspiring member of the far-right Proud Boys organization, who was among the first to push past police lines and into the Capitol crypt January 6, 2021. Prosecutors say Pruitt came face-to-face with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer during the attack on Congress. Video of the incident shows Schumer— and his security team turning and running in the opposite direction after they saw Pruitt approaching. In Georgia, the judge overseeing the grand jury probe into Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election has rejected a bid by Republican Governor Brian Kemp to quash a subpoena for his testimony. However, the Fulton County Superior Court judge ruled Monday that Kemp will not have to testify until after November's midterm elections, where he faces Democratic challenger Stacey Abrams. The special grand jury was requested by Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis earlier this year. Last week, Willis sought grand jury subpoenas for Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, and former Trump legal advisor, Sidney Powell. And in Oregon, a 20-year-old gunman wielding a semi-automatic assault rifle and a shotgun opened fire inside a Safeway grocery store in the city of Bend Sunday, killing two people before taking his own life. Witnesses say one of the victims, 66-year-old Safeway worker Donald Ray Surratt, likely saved the lives of many by confronting and attacking the gunman. In Texas, a federal judge has struck down a state law that banned adults under the age of 21 from carrying a gun, arguing the statute violated the Second Amendment. The ruling came just three months after an 18-year-old gunman killed 19 children and two teachers at Robb Elementary School in the city of Uvalde, Texas's deadly school shooting. The lawsuit was filed last November by the Firearms Policy Coalition. In related news in Austin, dozens of gun control advocates, including the families and loved ones of victims of the Uvalde mass shooting, rallied outside the Texas state capitol over the weekend, demanding the state raise the minimum age to purchase an AR-15 to 21 years. This is Maggie Morales, whose sister, Ava Morales, was one of the teachers killed at Robb Elementary in May. 
These weapons belong in the military. They belong in the war, not in the classroom. My sister did not have to die for this. It was too easy for this punk to buy these weapons and easily do what he did because of the laws that are in place. These laws should have changed a long time ago. Today, President Biden is going to Pennsylvania, where he's calling on Congress to pass a federal ban on assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. Biden's also requesting more money for police as part of what the White House calls its Safer America plan. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, Politico is reporting the Biden administration is preparing to ask Congress to approve a new $1.1 billion arms sale to Taiwan. The package reportedly includes 60 anti-ship missiles, 100 air-to-air missiles. This comes after two U.S. warships sailed through the Taiwan Strait Sunday for the first time since House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan earlier this month. China condemned the visit and launched major military drills near Taiwan. Meanwhile, President Biden announced $3 billion in more military aid for Ukraine last week, including money for missiles, artillery rounds and drones to help Ukrainian forces fight Russia. We begin today's show looking at U.S. policy on Russia and China. We're joined by the economist Jeffrey Sachs, director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University. He's president of the U.N. Sustainable Development Solutions Network. He served as advisor to three U.N. secretaries general. His latest articles headlined The West's False Narrative About Russia and China. He begins the article by writing, quote, the world is on the edge of nuclear catastrophe in no small part because of the failure of Western political leaders to be forthright about the causes of the escalating global conflicts. The relentless Western narrative that the West is noble while Russia and China are evil is simple-minded and extraordinarily dangerous, Jeffrey Sachs writes. Jeffrey Sachs, welcome to Democracy Now!, why don't you take it Thank from you. there? Good to be what, with you. <clears throat> what is the story that people in the West and around the world should understand about what's happening right now with these conflicts with Russia, with Russia and Ukraine and with China? The main point, Amy, is that we are not using diplomacy. We are using weaponry. Uh, this uh, sale now announced to Taiwan that you've been discussing this morning is just another case in point. This does not make Taiwan safer. This does not make the world safer. It certainly doesn't make the United States safer. This goes back uh, a long way. I think it's useful to start 30 years ago. The Soviet Union ended and some American leaders got it into their head that there was now what they called the unipolar world, that the U.S. was the sole superpower and we could run the show. The results have been disastrous. We have had now three decades of militarization of American foreign policy, a new database that Tufts is maintaining 
has just shown that there have been more than 100 military interventions by the United States since 1991. It's really unbelievable. And I have seen in my own experience over the last 30 years working extensively in Russia, in Central Europe, in China, and in other parts of the world, how the U.S. approach is a military first and often a military only approach. We arm who we want. We call for NATO enlargement, no matter what other countries say may be harmful to their security interests. We brush aside anyone else's security interests And when they complain, we ship more armaments to our allies in that region. We go to war when we want, where we want, whether it was Afghanistan or Iraq or the covert war against Assad in Syria, which is even today not properly understood by the American people, or the war in Libya. And we say we're peace loving. What's wrong with Russia and China? They are so warlike. They're out to undermine the world. And we end up in terrible confrontations. The war in Ukraine, just to finish the the, uh, introductory uh, view, could have been avoided and should have been avoided through diplomacy. What President Putin of Russia was saying for years was do not expand NATO into the Black Sea, not to Ukraine, much less to Georgia, which if people look on the map, straight across to the eastern edge of the Black Sea. Russia said this will surround us. This will jeopardize our security. Let us have diplomacy. The United States rejected all diplomacy. I tried to contact the White House at the end of 2021. In fact, I did contact the White House and said, There will be war unless the U.S. enters diplomatic talks with President Putin over this question of NATO enlargement. I was told the U.S. will never do that. That is off the table. And it was off the table. Now we have a war that's extraordinarily dangerous, and we are taking exactly the same tactics in East Asia that led to the war in Ukraine. We're organizing alliances building up weaponry, uh, trash-talking China, uh, having Speaker Pelosi fly to Taiwan when the Chinese government said, please, lower the temperature, lower the tensions. We say, no, we do what we want and now send more arms. This is a recipe for yet another war. And to my mind, it's terrifying We are at the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis, which I've studied all my life and I've written about, I've written a book about the aftermath. We are driving to the precipice and we are uh, filled with our our enthusiasm as we do so. And it's just uh, unaccountably uh, dangerous and uh, wrong-headed the whole approach of uh, U.S. foreign policy, and it's bipartisan. Uh, Jeffrey Sachs, I wanted to ask you, um, one of the things that you uh, mentioned in a recent article that was published in Consortium News 
was this insistence of the U- United States uh, uh, dragging Europe along as well uh, in maintaining hegemony uh, throughout the world at a time when the economic uh, power of uh, the West is declining. You mentioned, for instance, that the BRICS nations, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, represent more than 40% of the world's population and have a greater uh, GDP than the G7 nations, yet their interests and their concerns are pretty much uh, uh, dismissed or in the case, obviously, of uh, of uh, Russia and China, uh, portrayed to the American people as the aggressors, as uh, the authoritarians, the as the ones that are creating turmoil in the world. And I'm wondering if you can expand is, on uh, that. Yeah, absolutely. And and, uh, directing us to that is extremely important. The the disproportionate power of the Western world and especially the Anglo-Saxon world, which started with the British Empire and now the United States, is about 250 years old. So a short period in world history. It happened for a lot of very interesting reasons that the Industrial Revolution came to England first. Uh, The steam engine was invented there. That's probably the single most important invention of modern history. Britain became militarily dominant in the 19th century, like the United States was in the second half of the 20th century. Britain ran the show. Britain had the empire on which the sun never set. And the West, meaning the United States and Western Europe, now meaning the U.S. and uh, the European Union, the U.K., Canada, Japan, in other words, the G7, the European Union uh, together, uh, is is a small part of the world population, uh, perhaps uh, now uh, roughly 10 percent, a little bit more, maybe 12 and a half percent if you add in Japan uh, to uh, Western Europe and the U.S., uh, But the mindset is we run the world. And that was the way it was for 200 years uh, in this industrial age. But times have changed. And really, since the 1950s, the rest of the world, when it gained independence from European imperialism, started to educate its populations, started to adopt and adapt and innovate technologies And lo and behold, a small sliver of the world really didn't run the world or didn't have a monopoly on wisdom or knowledge or science or technology. And this is wonderful. Uh, The knowledge and possibility of decent lives is spreading throughout the whole world. But in the United States, there's a resentment to this a deep resentment. I think there's also a tremendous historical ignorance because uh, I think a lot of U.S. leaders have no clue as to modern history, but they resent China's rise. That is an affront to the United States. How dare China rise? This is our world. This is our century. And so starting around 2014, I saw step by step, I watched it within Hence, uh, uh, detail because it's, it's my daily activity. How the United States recast China, not as a, uh, country that was, uh, recovering from, uh, a century and a half of, uh, 
great difficulty, but rather as an enemy. And we consciously, as a matter of American foreign policy, started to say we need to contain China. China's rise is no longer in our interest, as if the United States is to determine whether China is prosperous or not. The Chinese are not naive. In fact, they're extraordinarily sophisticated. They watched all of this exactly the same way that I did. I know the authors of the U.S. texts there, my colleagues uh, at Harvard or uh, other places. I was shocked when this kind of containment idea started to be applied. But the basic point is the West has led the world for a brief period, 250 years, but feel that's our right. This is a Western world. We are the G7. We get to determine who writes the rules of the game. Uh, Indeed, Obama, uh, you know, a good guy on on, on the spectrum of uh, what we have in foreign policy, uh, said, uh, let's write the rules of trade for Asia, but not have China uh, write uh, any of those rules. The U.S. will write the rules. This is a this is a an incredibly naive and dangerous and outmoded way to uh, understand the world. We in the United States are 4.2 percent of the world's population. We do not run the world. We are not world leader. We are a country of 4.2 percent of the people in a big, diverse world. And we should learn to get along, play in the sandbox peacefully, not demand that we have all the toys in the sandbox And we're not over that thinking yet. And unfortunately, it's both political parties. It's what motivates Speaker Pelosi to go to Taiwan in the middle of all of this as if she really had to go to stir up the tensions. But it's the mindset that the U.S. is in charge. I wanted to go back a little bit uh, to back into the uh, the, the 1990s. Uh, uh, you recall, I'm sure, the the uh, the enormous financial collapse that occurred in Mexico uh, uh, in the 1990s, where the Clinton administration uh, authorized 50 billion dollars in a bailout uh, to Mexico, which was really to Wall Street investors. At the time, you were you were uh, advising the post-Soviet uh, 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 Russian government, which also had a financial uh, had deep financial problems at the time, but was not unable to get uh, any significant uh, Western assistance or even from the International Monetary Fund. You were critical of that at the time. I'm wondering if you could talk about the differences, how the U.S. responded to the Mexico crisis versus the Russian financial crisis and what the roots of that may have been in the, what the current situation is in Russia today. Absolutely. And, and I had a I had a controlled experiment because I was economic advisor both to Poland and to the Soviet Union in the last year of President Gorbachev and to President Yeltsin in the first two years of uh, Russian independence, 1992-93. My job was finance uh, to actually help Russia find a way to address, as you described it, a a massive financial crisis. And my basic uh, recommendation in Poland and then in Soviet Union and in Russia was 
to avoid a societal crisis and a geopolitical crisis, the, the rich Western world should help to tamp down this extraordinary financial crisis that was taking place with the breakdown of the former Soviet Union. Well, interestingly, in the case of Poland, I made a series of very specific recommendations, and they were all accepted by the U.S. government, creating a stabilization fund, canceling part of Poland's debts, allowing uh, many financial maneuvers to get Poland out of uh, the difficulty. And, you know, I patted myself on the back. Oh, look at this. I make a recommendation. And one of them for a billion dollars stabilization fund was accepted within eight hours by the White House. So I thought pretty good. Then came uh, the analogous appeal on behalf of first Gorbachev in the final days and then President Yeltsin. Everything I recommended, which was on the same uh, basis of uh, economic dynamics, was rejected flat out by the White House. I didn't understand it, I have to tell you at the time. I said, but it worked in Poland. And they'd stare at me blankly. Uh, in fact, uh, a, an acting secretary of state in 1992 said, Professor Sachs, it, it doesn't even matter whether I agree with you or not. It's not going to happen. And it took me actually quite a while to understand the underlying geopolitics. Those were exactly the days of Cheney and Wolfowitz and Rumsfeld and what became the project for the new American century, meaning for the continuation of American hegemony. I didn't see it at the moment because I was thinking as an economist how to help overcome a financial crisis, but the unipolar politics was taking shape and it was devastating. Of course, it left Russia in a massive financial crisis that led to a lot of instability that had its own implications for years to come. But even more than that, what these people were planning early on, despite explicit promises to Gorbachev and Yeltsin, was the expansion of NATO. And Clinton started the expansion of NATO with the three countries of Central Europe, uh, Poland, Hungary, uh, and Czech Republic. And then George W. Bush Jr. added seven countries, uh, Bulgaria, Romania, Slovakia, Slovenia, and the three Baltic states, but right up against Russia. And then in 2008, the coup de grace, which was the U.S. insistence over the private opposition of the European leaders. And European leaders talked to me privately about it at the time. But in 2008, Bush said, NATO will expand to Ukraine and to Georgia. And again, if you take out a map and look at the Black Sea, the explicit goal was to surround Russia in the Black Sea. By the way, it's an old playbook. It's the same playbook as Palmerston in 1853 to 1856 in the first Crimean War. Surround Russia in the Black Sea, cut off its uh, ability to uh, have a military presence and to project uh, any kind of influence into the eastern Mediterranean. Uh, Brzezinski himself said in 1997 that Ukraine would be the geographic pivot for Eurasia. So what these neocons were doing in the early 1990s was building 
the U.S. unipolar world. And they were already contemplating lots of wars in order to take out the former Soviet allied countries, wars to overthrow Saddam, wars to overthrow Assad, wars to overthrow Gaddafi. Those were all rolled out in the next 20 years. They've been a complete disaster, debacle for those countries, horrible for the United States, trillions of dollars wasted. But it was a plan. And that neoconservative plan is in its heyday right now on two fronts, in the Ukraine front and on the Taiwan Straits front. And it's extraordinarily dangerous what these people are doing to American foreign policy, which hardly is a is, is a, you know, a, a, a policy of democracy. It's a policy of a small group that has the idea that unipolar a unipolar world and U.S. hegemony is the way that we need to go. Um, Jeffrey Sachs, we don't have much time, but since this was such a big issue, Naomi Klein took you on big time with the shock doctrine, talking about you uh, recommending shock therapy. Can you draw a line between what happened as the Russian economy unraveled to the conditions leading up to the Ukraine invasion? I mean, how did the economic catastrophe that followed the collapse of the Soviet, Soviet Union lead to the rise of the oligarchic class and, indeed, the presidency? of Vladimir Putin. Yeah, I, I've tried to explain to Naomi, uh, whom I admire a great deal uh, for years, that what I was recommending was financial help to whether it was Poland or to the Soviet Union or to Russia. I was absolutely aghast at the cheating and the corruption and the giveaways. And I said so very explicitly at the time and resigned uh, over it, both because I was useless in trying to get Western help and also because I did not like at all what was going on. And I would say that the failure of an orderly approach, which was achieved in Poland, but failed in the former Soviet Union because there was no... Uh, Western constructive engagement definitely played a role in the instability in the 1990s, definitely played a role in the rise of the oligarch class. In fact, I, I was absolutely explaining to the U.S. and to the IMF and the World Bank in 1994-95 what was going on. They didn't care because they thought, well, that's okay. That's for that's for Yeltsin, perhaps uh, all of that cheating in the shares for loans process. Having said all of that, we have less a, than a minute. It, okay, having said all of that, I think what is important to say is that there is no linear determinism, even from events like that, which were destabilizing and very unhappy and unnecessary to what is happening now. Because when President Putin came in, he was not anti-European. He was not anti-American. What he saw, though, was the incredible arrogance of the United States, the expansion of NATO, the wars in Iraq, the, the covert war in Syria, the war in Libya against the U.N. resolution. So we created so much of what we're facing right now through our own ineptitude and arrogance. There was no linear determination. It was step-by-step -step U.S. arrogance that has helped to bring us to where we are today. 
Jeffrey Sachs, economist and director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University, president of the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network, has served as advisor to three UN secretaries general. I want to thank you so much for being with us, joining us from Austria, where he's attending a conference. Coming up, uh, we will look at—we'll uh, talk to a reporter who's documented how, over the last year, the U.S. has approved just 123 Afghan humanitarian parole applications. Compare that to 68,000 approved applications from Ukrainians in recent months. Stay with us. Come your ranks of labor, come Union Corps. And see if you remember the struggles of before When you were standing helpless on the outside of the door And you started building links on the chain, on the chain And you started building links on the chain When the police on the horses were waiting on demand Riding through the strike with a pistol in their hand Swinging at the skulls of many a union man As you build one more lane On the chain, on the chain As you build one more lane On the chain Links on the chain by Phil Oaks. Here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. One, uh, one year ago today, the last U.S. troops left Afghanistan, 11.59 p.m. local time in Kabul, the final U.S. military transport plane took off, ending the longest war in U.S. history. In the preceding weeks, the U.S. and allied nations helped evacuate some 122,000 people, mostly Afghans, who were trying to leave the country as the Taliban regained power. Today, we look at what's happened to Afghan refugees over the past year. For those Afghans trying to rebuild their lives in the U.S., many have faced significant obstacles. The news organization Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting recently reported the U.S. government has approved less than 2 percent of Afghan applications at process for humanitarian parole. According to documents obtained by Reveal, 66,000 applications for the I-131 program have been filed for Afghans seeking humanitarian parole in the U.S. The documents show U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services has processed less than 8,000 of the applications. The agency approved just 123. Meanwhile, the agency's already approved more than 68,000 applications from Ukrainians since launching a separate program called Uniting for Ukraine in April after the Russian invasion. The U.S. has also requested Afghan applicants pay a $575 per person fee while applicants for Uniting for Ukraine program face no fee. Reveal reports U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services has collected nearly $20 million in fees from Afghan applicants since last July. In a moment, we'll be joined by Najib Amini, a reporter with Reveal. But first, I want to turn to an excerpt of an interview he conducted for Reveal's weekly radio show. In the clip, he interviews an Afghan woman named Nilofar. She is a former teacher still living in Afghanistan, fearing for her safety. She applied for the humanitarian parole program months ago. 
It has been a long time since we applied for HP, but still uh, we do not hear uh, any response from USCIS, uh, even the positive or negative. We are still waiting. What is that waiting like? We are in our homes. We don't go out. We don't go shopping. We don't go park. We don't go anywhere. We are just uh, stay at home uh, in a very bad situation and really bad uh, uh, economical and also mental situation. We do not know how long we can continue to stay safe. An excerpt from Reveal's weekly radio show and podcast. We are now joined by Najib Amini. He is a producer reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting. His recent report titled Afghanistan's Recognition Problem. His parents left Afghanistan in the 1970s. Um, it's great to have you with us, Najib. Uh, talk about your findings. I mean, the comparison with Ukrainians is stunning. Uh, Amy, just humble to be here. Um, I think, uh, you know, just to paraphrase from your words, I think uh, we at Reveal, you know, started to look into this after hearing from, I mean, just from myself personally, hearing from other family members, uh, other legal advocates, other people in the community, that this was a pathway that, you know, tens of thousands of Afghans had, you know, looked at a year ago. And, you know, for months, just silence, silence, silence. And then by December, you know, some rejections came through, but very few applications were granted. And so USCIS had publicly shared some numbers, but things didn't really seem to add up. And so back in February, you know, the team at Reveal uh, FOIAed USCIS and looked into these records. And um, the numbers are just they're just stark, uh, not just the numbers, but even just the approaches to the two different programs. And Najib, what uh, it's shocking that. A country, Afghanistan, that where the United States was involved in in a war for 20 years and many people there cooperated with the U.S. forces, those folks are being asked to pay uh, to apply for uh, humanitarian parole, whereas uh, Ukrainians are able to apply for free. What do you make of why why this policy difference? So it, I think it, it, the route is down to the immigration system. And so Afghans at the time were looking at different immigration pathways. There was a special immigrant visa. There was the priority one, the priority two program. Uh, the reality is and was at the time that all these systems were backlogged. And so um, lawmakers, legal advocates were actually pushing Afghans to apply for this program called the humanitarian parole. Uh, it's something that's used in extreme urgent situations. If you, you know, need to do surgery or if you want to go and visit um, a dying relative that might be in the U.S. And so this specific program, it doesn't, you know, it isn't a, a pathway to sort of citizenship, but it is, you know, temporary entry into the U.S. And one of the criteria is, you know, um, is harm. And so tens of thousands of Afghans believe that they were in harm and that they were eligible for this program. And USCIS even had a web page with instructions for Afghans for this program, uh, instructions as detailed to write, you know, please write expedited in black ink in the top right corner. And so this was a program that, you know, was the last avenue. I shouldn't say last, but, you know, one of the last 
possibilities to to leave the country. Um, and you know, just some of the the, the, the findings. It typically takes USCIS 90 days to process these applications. Um, the data shows that it's taken more than twice as long. We just heard from Nilufar. That Those kinds of delays, that limbo, I mean, there's the psychological impact of it, but there's also the physical safety where how much longer can you stay in these safe houses? Uh, how much, you know, can you sort of like, you know, stay put before either, you know, p- perhaps the Taliban might come knocking on your door or you just you run out of resources to continue living in that kind of situation. And so going back to your question, Juan, why are people paying $575 for an application fee when Ukrainians are are offered a different program where they there is no fee? I mean, that comes down to a decision made by the Biden administration to say, for Afghans, this is the this is the path for humanitarian parole, but for Ukrainians, this is the path for humanitarian parole. Now, I want to be clear, like Ukraine is very much an active war zone and legal advocates are like are all for the Uniting for Ukraine program. Um, in fact, if anything, it's kind of the model of what humanitarian parole could, should, maybe, you know, needs to be. Um, but the discrepancy or the idea that here's a program that rolled out months after the departure from Kabul and it's only it's still only being applied for Ukrainians, uh, whereas Afghans are still in this you know state of limbo. I just think a lot of people in this community, in this diaspora, legal advocates, um, they just have a lot of questions. Let me ask you, on Friday, we interviewed Anatole Levin, senior fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, about the disparity um, between how Ukrainian refugees are treated here, how many are accepted, and how Afghan refugees are welcomed here or not. This was his response. Well, I mean, the response to Ukraine has obviously been—and Ukrainian refugees has been vastly more generous. Um, now, uh, not you know, g- giving asylum to people who work for the United States and Britain is obviously disgraceful. It's 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 dishonourable. Uh, I have to say though that when it comes to you know much larger numbers of refugees from Afghanistan, um, you know as we have seen uh, from you know previous uh, generations of, of migrants to the West, um, there has been you know often real problems with integration. And therefore, you know, uh, in even in the first generation, let alone the second generation, with um, some of these people, you know, who have come to the West as refugees, then turning to extremism and terrorism. So I'm afraid that, you know, simply saying that we must accept anyone who wants to leave Afghanistan and can uh, is, you, you know, uh, not uh, a solution. Um, you know, Ukrainians like Poles and others, uh, you know, are much, much easier, frankly, to integrate and much more likely to be successful in Western societies. I mean, that sounds harsh, but I'm afraid it is a fact. A fact, Najib Amini? Uh, I'm perplexed as to why uh, he would even say that out loud. Um, I mean, how to answer this question, I think. Let's break it, let's break it down like this. There's so much focus on just um, Afghans who might have a connection to uh, Western governments, if they were translators or if they worked with um, with the forces. And I think let's let's even unpack that before addressing uh, the previous speaker. 
That needs to stop because all it's suggesting is that Afghans who are part of the effort are the only Afghans that matter. When in fact, you know, um, for the past 20 years, and if you want to go back even further, back in the 80s and, and, that, and that conflict, the U.S. involvement in that country, it, you know, spans generations. And so this notion that only, you know, translators are the ones who have priority or only those who helped out with the, the, the forces, when in fact, like, there's a direct connection or a very strong connection between most average Afghans and the U.S. Uh, effort over the past uh, two decades. It doesn't just, you know, boil down to people who, you know, might have been translators. As to the point about integration, I mean, how, what's the rubric? What's the metric? Uh, and is it just because you come from Europe that all of a sudden you get a pass uh, versus other countries are just like, nope, it, you, you might have a, a, a different you know, affiliation of food or faith or language or clothing or culture. And as for that, it's difficult to integrate. Therefore, you know what, Shake Art, like, I... I don't know if that's uh, that. Yeah, I guess to answer your question, is that a fact? Um, hard no. Najib Amini, we want to thank you for being with us. Producer Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting. We'll link to your piece, Afghanistan's Recognition Problem, back in 30 seconds. your mind by Jer. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez as we end today's show in Florida, where 25-year-old community organizer Maxwell Alejandro Frost, who made history when he won the Democratic primary for an open U.S. House seat a week ago today. Frost will become the first Afro-Cuban, first member of Generation Z elected to Congress if he goes on to win November's general election for Florida's heavily Democratic 10th Congressional District. He's the former national organizing director for March for Our Lives, which was formed by survivors of the Parkland shooting in Florida and campaigned in support of abortion rights. He's also supported Medicare for All, legislation to combat the climate crisis, the legalization of cannabis, and says he will be a, quote, pro-Israel, pro-Palestinian member of Congress. Maxwell Alejandro Frost, welcome to Democracy Now! Can you talk about why you feel this victory, which could well be a victory in November, is so important for this country? Well, thank you so much for having me on. I think this is important for this country because it sends a message to not just young people, but all folks to not count young people out of the conversation. And the fact that in a democracy, in a representative one, we need a Congress and a government that looks like the country. And yes, that means in terms of a race, but it also means in terms of age and experience and where people come from. Uh, and I'd, I'd like to ask you, in terms of your uh, activism, you're 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 very young, but you've already had about a decade of experience in grassroots campaigns. Could you talk about some of the campaigns that you've been involved in and how that uh, uh, propelled you to want to run for Congress at such a young age? 
Yeah, well, for me, this journey started 10 years ago because of the Sandy Hook shooting. Um, I remember seeing what happened on the television screen. It actually really pushed me to go to the vigil that was going on in Washington, D.C., where I met um, one of the brothers of one of the victims, and the experience I had with him just changed my life forever. And I left that experience saying that for the rest of my life, I'm going to fight for a world where no one has to feel the pain I saw him feel that night. Um, since then, um, I've been working in politics and in the movement world in, in movements that I feel like will bring justice to folks. And so when we talk about Amendment 4, I worked for the ACLU, leading their field effort here in Florida, um, knocking doors, making phone calls, working to win the hearts and minds of folks to say, hey, look, people deserve second chances. People deserve to vote once they get out of prison and, you know, uh, people with previous felonies. And so I had the honor of being a part of that struggle. Um, Two, at March for Our Lives, I became the national organizing director where I worked hand in hand with young people from all across the country, uh, over 200 chapters, training, educating, and resourcing them to have what they need to make a difference in their local government. And whether or not that's working to get more money for community violence intervention so communities can stop violence before it happens or uh, fighting for safer gun laws. And so, you know, I've had the privilege of being a part of some very important struggles um, in our country's history over the past decade and want to take what I learned there as a movement organizer and bring it to Congress. I wanted to ask you about your views on Israel and Palestine. Um, A few weeks ago, you published a position paper in which you said U.S. military aid to Israel is, quote, one of the most important parts of the foreign aid that we contribute to. You also said the boycott sanctions divestment movement, the boycott divestment sanctions movement, or BDS, is extremely problematic and undermines the chances of peace. Um, Many Palestinian Americans in your district said they felt deceived and betrayed by your views after supporting your run. I think it was Rasha Mubarak who told the Middle East Eye, essentially, he built his campaign off our pain and our hope to elect another voice into Congress who advocated for a free Palestine. Um, And I also wanted to ask you about that issue of money in the campaign. The Israeli newspaper Haaretz reports um, your position did not provoke enough opposition for super PAC spending. You received a million-dollar pledge of support from the new super PAC Protect Our Future, funded almost entirely by the crypto billionaire Samuel Bankman-Fried. Can you talk about that? Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, for myself as an organizer, as a progressive, I mean, when I close my eyes and I think about the world that I want to live in, it's a world where Palestinians are able to live free, have the resources they need, and just be able to live their lives. Uh, you know, very, very similar to what I believe Americans should have as well. And same thing with Israelis. I close my eyes and think of a world where Israelis are able to live in a world free of violence and uh, without the fear of being uh, gunned down or any missiles or anything like that. And so I support a two state solution, uh, because I believe that's the strongest and quickest path path towards peace um, for the entire region. Um, And all subsequent policy for me has to point to that two-state solution, ensuring that Palestinians have their own sovereign state where they're able to live. And I think there's things that Israel needs to do in ensuring that the, you know, mass uh, demolitions, evictions stop, um, that the uh, settlement expansion stop so we can move towards peace. And then, um, you know, Hamas needs to stop uh, lobbing missiles towards Israel. It's putting families and children at risk as well. And I think when we get to a place um, where peace is possible, a two-state solution is the best way forward. And that's what I champion, um, and that's what I'm going to push for in Congress.
and, and Maxwell, you live in central Florida. Uh, how do you speak to the Trump supporters, especially the conspiracy theorists uh, and election deniers? Do you think there's a way to win them over or do you just have to mobilize a bigger vote from uh, people who don't hold their views? You know, I think it's in becoming increasingly difficult, but it is important. I mean, we can never give up on anybody. Um, as an organizer myself, um, I really believe that this has to be about the battle for hearts and minds. Um, and that means never giving up on people, no matter how far gone they might seem. Um, it, again, it's becoming increasingly difficult, especially with the rhetoric, uh, rhetoric we're hearing from the right, what we're hearing from those leaders. Uh, but we can never give up on the fight of just talking to our fellow human beings about what we believe in and why we believe in this future. And at the end of the day, the message that we carried in this primary, part of the reason we won and why we're going to win this general November is that it's a platform all about love. And that's something that anyone can get behind. It's bringing together common shared values um, behind an agenda that means because I love you, I want you to have health care, I want you to have safety, and I want you to have the opportunity that you deserve. And I wanted to ask you, your, uh, your, the, uh, your, your family, the, your adopted parents, uh, your mother was from Cuba, uh, the grandmother was from Cuba, and um, I'm wondering your perspective, given the importance of uh, Cuban relations uh, with the electorate in Florida, how you feel about the Biden administration's current stance and policy uh, toward uh, the, uh, the nation of Cuba? Yeah, I mean, the way I approach Cuba and, you know, a lot of times it's me just thinking about my family there, uh, me thinking about the most vulnerable people there. Um, I believe that there are multiple truths to be had. Um, you know, the, the current regime in Cuba is oppressive to the Cuban people, has been. Um, that is why my grandma, my abuela, my mom, my aunt, they came here during the freedom flights in the late 1960s to escape that and find a better life. Um, but at the same time, also recognizing that U.S., uh, in Cuba, a policy that's been normalized hasn't been working and, in fact, in a lot of times has been affecting the most vulnerable people and not the folks we need to affect to, to create the policy change that's needed on the island. So, um, I, you know, there's multiple truths that need to be held there. I think it's important to normalize those relations and move to a place where we are centering the poor and working class families in Cuba that are crying out um, for help and support. Um, from a violent, uh, oppressive regime. Maxwell Frost, are you for lifting the embargo? Um, I am. Finally, President Biden's going to Pennsylvania today, calling for an assault weapons ban. You're a major anti-gun activist. Um, do you feel that this is uh, enough? I'm sorry, can you repeat it? Oh, President Biden's going to Pennsylvania today, calling for an assault weapons ban. I think an assault weapons ban is extremely important. I think the bipartisan bill that was passed uh, just a few months ago is also important in taking the steps necessary to end gun violence in this country. And what we know is the leading cause of death for children recently went from automobile accidents to gun violence. And so our children are literally on the front lines of this. There's a lot more that needs to be done, but I think these steps are important and significant, especially when you don't allow yourself to get clouded with the statistics and the numbers behind every number. There's a human, there's a person, there's a family, there's a story. And when we learn that legislation that can save one, two, three, four, five lives a day is more than worth it. Um, there's a lot more work that needs to be done, but Maxwell, I think these are important steps. Alejandro Frost, want to thank you for being with us. Won the Democratic primary, first generation zier. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.